What needs to change to make sure parents with learning difficulties are treated fairly? We work with lots of parents who have learning difficulties who come to our residential assessment centres and we work really hard to make sure the process is as fair as possible using different tools to support them and help them develop their skills. We joined the network to improve our skills and to learn from other professionals. Nadine has over 20 years experience as a policy officer, lawyer and a strategist. She's witnessed the experience of parents with learning difficulties and their children from many different angles. Now her focus is on using her skills to make sure their experiences are not ignored nor forgotten. Here she explains what the network is. In this episode from our series about working with parents with learning difficulties, I'm going to speak to Policy Officer Nadine Tilbury from the Working Together with Parents Network. I'm delighted, of course, that you're a member. Um, the network is in fact unique. We've got over 900 professional members of the network um, within the UK and including outside and they're all professionals who work with parents who've got learning difficulties or learning disabilities. Um, I use the, cha- the, the phrase um, interchangeably, um, but we mean the kind of parents who struggle with literacy, numeracy, organizing, planning, um, abstract concepts, etc. Whether they're formally diagnosed as having a learning disability or not, these are the parents who struggle and these are the parents with whom we work. Um, The professionals come from, in particular, the sectors of health, anything from midwives to clinical psychologists to OTs to SALTs, uh, literally the whole range of medical professionals. Also social workers, both children's sections and adults. And independent advocates, of course, people who work very closely with the parents and uh, legal sector. And the point is, that all these professionals have got the most extraordinary range of expertise, experience, skills, knowledge in working with parents with learning difficulties. And there are a very generous source of resources for all the members. And our ultimate aim is not so much about keeping the child with the family, it's about a fair process for the family when looking into whether a child can remain safely within its own family. So that really is, uh, you know, the start and the end of the, of the concept of the network. So, so what has the network achieved since it was set up? When was it set up, first of all, sorry, and then what has it achieved since it started? It was set up before my time, so around about, I think, 2007, um, following on from Beth Tarleton's research, and uh, she's the coordinator of the network, and she did a piece of research that was called finding the right support that was in 2006 that led to the good practice guidance on working with parents with a learning disability 2007 which was then issued by the department of health and the department for education and skills and we the network updated that document in 2016 and it was set up in order to find and encourage professionals to provide the best kind of support to parents to enable them to parent safely with the children. And it's an aim that is still very relevant. We've had some great successes in the last few years with getting professionals and the courts to recognize that the parents have got a right, a legal right to support 
No parent is expected to parent on their own. Every parent has a right to support and parents with learning difficulties just as much. Um, so we were very pleased with um, the president of the family divisions guidance in 2018 to all the lawyers and the judges who work in the family courts when he raised awareness of the good practice guidance and he commended it for attention, which really, really did um, raise the profile of the right of the parents to have support to parent. Have you found the case that parents um, with learning difficulties are put under more more scrutiny? All parents have the right to support. With or without disabilities and whatever nature of disability, all parents have a statutory right to support. It's in international law, United Nations conventions. It's in domestic law, such as the Children Act of 1989. It's everybody recognises the right to have support to raise a family. But research has also found that as far as parents who learn difficulties are concerned, higher barriers, higher hurdles, higher obstacles seem to be put in their place compared to A, parents with no dis disability at all, at all, and B, parents with other kinds of disabilities, which is quite interesting. So more is expected of a parent with learning difficulties. And you ask yourself, why would that be? And partly, I think it's to do with um, confirmation bias or bias confirmation, that there's an unconscious, perhaps, thought amongst so many professionals that a parent with learning difficulties is not going to be able to parent the child safely. And we find, for example, I, I, I monitor cases that, that come to my attention about parents with disability. For example, a blind parent or a parent who is a wheelchair user. And significantly more support is provided to them, it seems with less difficulty, than is provided to a parent with learning difficulties mm -hmm. by the local authorities. So, it's hard to explain why there should be such a difference. Why is it possible to provide almost 24 hour care at home for a wheelchair user mother with an 11 year old child? Mm -hmm. Whereas as soon as there is any degree of extensive support required for a parent with learning difficulties, suddenly the cry is, ah, too much support equates to substituted parenting which is harmful for a child, therefore the child must be removed. So it's something that we're tackling at the moment. We're, we're trying to raise awareness of the, it seems, unfair comparison between the amount of support willingly provided to some parents and less willingly provided to parents with learning difficulties. That's really that's really interesting. I'd never I'd never thought about that at all. Like I'd never it's the stigma, I suppose, around the learning difficulties in learning disabilities as well, isn't there? I think it's, um, it's I think unconscious um, prejudice, and and also think it's because that there's this thought that oh well they'll never be cured, they'll always mm. have the learning disability, therefore they'll always need support. Well, a person who's blind is never going to be cured and may well need long-term support so i don't really see why that's the problem 
And I, 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 again, you know, I, we work with loads of professionals. I've, I've been very honoured to, to meet a, a great many people who work very closely and intensively with parents with learning difficulties. And sometimes for over 10 years with the same family who have had recurrent removals. Um, and it, it seems to me quite clear that there's a big difference between the people, the professionals who set out with the view of wanting to ensure the family can stay together safely and the other professionals who approach with the, the starting point of, oh, that this is, she's never going to cope. It's going to be forever. Then she's going to always need support. And so it's all the problems that are found. It's never, they never start from the solution of at the end, which is right. We are going to aim for reunification or we're going to aim for the family to stay together. So what do we need to do to ensure that can happen? As I say, there's the two types. You got the, the you have the, the professionals who are extraordinary in their creative thinking outside the box, and then you've got the professionals whose approach is computer say no. Yeah. So I, I wonder, um, what have been the main obstacles that your network has faced? Here's one example: the Good Practice Guidance 2007 that I, I mentioned a little while back. That was a a really great document that sets out five key principles when working with a parent with and it's not just about once we're in child protection land it's about any professional for example a school person who works with a parent who has got a learning difficulty so it's a really really good piece of kit and it was just one document that was issued at the time by the department um, of health and the department for education and skills but having produced an excellent document they didn't really um, have an implementation plan and a House of Lords uh, Committee on um, Human Rights, Joint Committee on Human Rights, mentioned this and said if it hadn't been for the um, working together with parents network, the document would never have been circulated. It wouldn't have been published. It wouldn't have been distributed. And it said that the government departments should have taken responsibility for circulating it and raising its profile, but they didn't. Nevertheless, the document did get out there to some people. But in 2016, the network was obliged to do the update because when I joined in 2013, and that was the first time I had seen or heard of the Good Practice Guidance, it seemed it was clear to me as a lawyer that there were many bits that were out of date. And so I tried to work with the Department of Health to get it updated, but they felt they didn't have sufficient resources to commit which given that it was just one person to help me out with the drafting, I didn't think was a huge amount of resources. So it's not so much resistance, it's, in, it's more a lack of interest, I think. But on a positive side, the disability strategy is currently being consulted on by the government. And we are putting in our representations for that. For example, the disability strategy has got a number of themes that it's looking at. One of the themes is disabled children and families. So we have suggested that there should also be a theme, disabled parents and families, and broken down into, for example, the need for funded independent advocacy, the need to support the parents, the need to support the children, um, accessibility to justice, etc. So mm -hmm. one of the obstacles for us is getting our voice heard. But on the other hand, I think we are a little like mosquito verging on bunny boiler every time we see anything about um, a parent's 
and child protection proceedings issued, for example, by the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory or the What Works Centre or any of the people who are well known in the field of child welfare. We always put in something, whether it's a tweet or whether it's a response to a consultation saying, and does this also include parents with learning difficulties? And, oh, and does this report mention parents with learning disabilities? So we're trying constantly to raise the profile some of our teams have been keen to find out what support is what extra support is out there for parents with learning difficulties out in the communities well that's another good thing about the network is it, it covers the whole of the uk and as some places abroad so we do get people saying in my area we have whatever it is so we do try and share good practice and, and raise awareness of other people's projects and programs but for example shared lives is a fantastic project where a parent can move into a home with uh, a family or um, a couple and the parent is supported by the shared lives carer. They are not foster carers, they're not there to look after the child, but of course as any adult is responsible for any child, there's a safeguard, there's a safety net for the children's services knowing that the parent is being supported by the shared lives carer and that if there were to be concerns social um, services would be informed but the shared lives carers are not assessing they're not judging they're not reporting back on the parent so it's the closest to having a family home with support to raise a child there's also a grapevine in coventry where they have mentor parents so other parents who volunteer to work with a parent just to give them the everyday hints and tips and support and knowledge that a lot of families who are socially isolated don't otherwise have. There's some mellow parenting courses that were adapted for parents with learning difficulties, including the dads, which again is excellent. A lot of video work, a lot of showing the parents how to react to children's cues. Um, and there are, for example, local area um, coordinators who scour the community for community volunteers or support and again finding mentor buddy parents so that a parent with learning difficulties has got somebody they could just ask a question of without thinking that they're setting off all sorts of alarm bells in social services so I think you know, those four examples alone are all excellent forms of support in a community um, environment. Is there, is there enough support, though, across the country? Because are these in specific areas or is it very patchy? It's patchy, like anything, I think. Um, any service, you get great service in some places and poor in others. Um, and I think also it's about leadership and visibility. If you have, um, say, the local authority that's very vocal and very visible in its support for parents with learning difficulties, then services come on stream that some funding is is allocated attention is given uh, results are monitored and things work well in such areas um dorset for example dorset council has got an excellent joint um, multi-agency protocol for working with parents who learn difficulties and it's great it it, it it just ties in adult services children's services and the health service it looks at advocacy um, it looks at sharing resources, sharing funding, sharing expenses with a view to 
working for the family to be able to remain together. And then there are other places where it's dismal. But I, you know, we, we like in the network to concentrate on the positives. We, we know nothing about the negatives, yeah. but we really like good practice and, um, where, and things that are working. Because if you can't spread the news about what's working, um, it would make life just really too negative and too depressing. And it does work well in some places. It's got to be said. I know you work with a lot of professionals that work sort of on a day-to-day basis with um, parents with learning difficulties. But what kind of relationship do you have with, you know, council leaders, the people in charge of the funding and budgets and those decision makers? Commissioners are a prime target yeah. for our, our interest and attention, obviously. Um, and we've, we've got a few contacts with some of the commissioners around. Um, and it's a bit chicken and egg. If, if the local authority doesn't have an interest in getting it right, then it's, it's carrot and stick. On the whole, we, we get a lot of local authorities that want to do it well, um, want to get it right. And those are the ones who, once we've contacted them and raised an issue or raised a concern, they're the ones that come back to us saying, we had no idea, tell us what we need to do, or can you give us any advice, or can you give us training? Um, so that's great. The ones who don't respond and or who respond poorly to our challenge or our scrutiny, well, we obviously can have um, the legal steps to take there. For example, indicating to the monitoring officer that there's a breach of human rights occurring as a systemic and systematic approach by the their particular local authority. Um, we can, of course, give uh, advice to the advocates. It's often the independent advocates who raise this with us. Um, and often also children's social workers. So again, we give them the ammunition in terms of the detail of the law, how it's being broken, what steps can be taken. And then we give them that information so that they can take the next steps. What would you be saying to someone who's, you know, who's not, um, it's not that they're not interested, it's just that they've never really thought that deeply about it. What, what would be the headline points you would be making to them to make them listen to you? Um, I think it depends um, which department we'd be talking to. If I was talking to a commissioner, I would be looking at it on the money side, showing how some upfront expenditure is in fact much cheaper than um, having to put a child into care and fostering and long-term fostering and adoption, especially if there's more than one child. The stats are there, the economic argument is there, that it is cheaper to provide advocacy from the outset plus support than it is to remove say two children I mean, the, the cost and the stats are absolutely um, no-brainers in terms of the financial argument quite apart from human cost obviously um, if I was talking to uh, heads of services like adult services or children's services I would again be looking at the statutory requirements that are on those um, individuals so sorry i slightly lost track there's my phone's going off no that's all right but really the statutory and the moral argument is always about the child the child is the center of it all and ultimately if if everybody's focus is on helping that child in totally simplistic terms on the whole children want to be with their parents on the whole parents want to be whatever it is their child needs them to be. So why aren't 
all the statutory agencies, all the, why isn't everybody focused on helping them to parent safely so that in fact the child's welfare, the child's life is the centre. Everybody says the child is the centre, but it seems to me to, again, to be a no brainer that if you help the parents, you help the child. And it's a family approach, a holistic approach. You can't just siphon them off. Dean, I think that we've covered loads of really good stuff there. I don't know whether you've got, I've covered all my questions. I don't know whether there's any additional points or things that you would like to tell the listeners about that you think we should know. Probably try to finish really on, on one thing, which I think affects all the practitioners, whatever sector they're working in, is the importance of the time scales, the timing, because the law, i.e. especially the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act, entitle a parent to participate fully in the process. And the process isn't starting at the court door. The process starts from the moment the state, i.e. social services, become involved with a family. So if you don't have immediately within the first week or two, a assessment of how the, the parent communicates effectively, i.e. how they receive information, how they process information, and how they provide information. If you don't know how that parent is best able to communicate effectively two-way, then what? how on earth are they fully participating in the process? How do they have any chance of understanding what the concerns are and of um, tackling those concerns? How do they have any chance of avoiding escalating from child in need to child protection to care proceedings, etc.? So the timing of an assessment right from the outset of how they communicate best, a timing of the assessment for how what strengths they've got, what areas they need help in, the timing to allow the parent to process that training, process that information, the child's timescales are ticking. The court's clock ticks. The parent's ability to learn is time related. So everything, everything comes back to the click, a ticking clock of timing. So all I can say is to whoever is working with a parent, timing, everything must be at its earliest opportunity from the outset of the state's involvement with the family because anything less than that sets up the parent to fail and sets up the child again to have no family. That was Nadine Tilbury from the Working Together with Parents Network. I just want to say thank you to all the guests who've contributed to these, to these last few podcasts. I really hope it's helped to understand more about our work with parents with learning difficulties. And if you do work with parents with learning difficulties or fund support services, I hope it's shone some light on how you and colleagues could help improve the experiences of these parents too. Thank you for listening. Here at St Michael's, we give children the best start in life by working directly with their parents. If you'd like some more information, you can check out our website and the links in the bio. It's stmichaelsfellowship.org.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>